Hi and welcome back to uh, the Cycling Science Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Professor Richard Davison from uh, the University of West of Scotland and today I have with me my two co-hosts. Hi Richard, uh, I'm Professor Grant for GM from Edinburgh University. Hi Richard, I'm Dr Leslie Ingram, also from Edinburgh University. And of course we uh, tend not to use uh, titles here, um, obviously uh, it's normally we refer to them as G and Les and um, this is uh, episode three of our uh, podcast. Uh, Paul, uh, welcome. Uh, to uh, the Cycling Podcast, Cycling Science Podcast, I should say. And um, Paul, uh, before we actually get into uh, the paper that we're going to talk about today, um, I think just for our, our listeners, it's good to introduce um, uh, the guest uh, in our interview and just a little bit of a background uh, about yourself and what you're what you're doing now, because I think you've. You've, you've moved where this work was done at Exeter. So, uh, Paul, over to you. No, yeah, thank you, Richard. So, um, I, I, I should start off really by talking about my, or starting off with my undergraduate. I was very lucky to start um, or complete an undergraduate at Exeter, at University of Exeter. Um, finished that in, in 2012, and, and even throughout that undergraduate degree, I was very fortunate to, to get quite a good relationship with, with Dr. Annie Van Hattelen, which led on to my master's, really, my master's um, thesis and the research in, 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 um, uh, that I completed with, as part of the, the, the master's programme. And, and I was really fortunate, again, during that period of time to start to get a, a quite a good relationship with, with Professor Andy Jones as well, who I'm sure many will know. A combination of that really led on to the PhD. It might sound a little bit lazy, but I then decided to complete a PhD with um, with Andy and or with Andy Jones and um, with Annie Van Hattel at Exeter. Um, and during that time, I um, was very fortunate as, as well to do a small research position um, with, with uh, Professor Anna Botel. So through that time, so that was 2009 through to, to 2018, I, I've got a, a nice range of experiences within predominantly within cycling uh, and predominantly within neuromuscular function. But as we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about some of the mathematical modeling stuff that we've done around critical power as well. Since then, I was just very fortunate or very, very fortunate really to be offered a, initially a teaching fellow position at the University of Birmingham, but that led on to a, a research fellowship post, a postdoctoral post with uh, Dr. Liebring. Uh, very much a big change now, so working in protein metabolism and specifically looking at the role of obesity and sarcopenia. So very different to what we're going to discuss today. I, I still have a real active interest in performance. In fact, uh, just, just last month, I was at a cycling symposium that was held at Loughborough University. I don't know if you saw that one lying around on social media, but I still try and, you know, keep in, in touch with the performance-based stuff, and which is why I'm obviously delighted to talk about it today mm. I, and you know we we spoke a little bit earlier you know and uh, I, I almost asked you the question about your own cycling experience and you said that uh, you wouldn't be able to do yourself a, a, 
uh, an expert cyclist, but a bit of a runner, I believe. Is that the case? Yeah, I do, yeah. I mean, I've, I've still got a couple of bikes. Um, when I say a couple of bikes, people seem to think that's a bit odd. But for, even for a normal standard cyclist, I think two or three bikes is normal and, and beyond that. But yeah, I still do a little bit of cycling. But as I mentioned earlier, I'd be lying. I think if I, if I said I cycle quite a lot, I much prefer running these days. So I try and still get involved in sort of 10 kilometer half marathon type distances. I guess that, that comes on from probably follows on from working with Andy for so long as well he's obviously got an active interest in, in research and taking part in running. I know he's just recently kind of got himself back into it and, and his good mistress, yeah. his good mistress yeah. as well I think she's getting to the stage she's going to overtake him if he's not careful. I think so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, the paper just to get back to the, the paper then the paper that we're going to uh, discuss today is one that is just recently published in the Journal of Sports Sciences and yep. it's, the title of it is uh, Road Cycle TT Performance uh, Relationship to the Power Duration Model and Association with uh, FTP. Now, I think again I, we, we spoke before I said you know certainly a lot of our listeners and most cyclists are fairly familiar with the concept of FTP, which we might just delve into a little bit later about your view on yeah. on that as a measure. But um, I suppose it's, it's kind of alludes to power duration model, but usually, you know, us as physiologists, sports scientists, we look at power duration model slightly differently. And, and this paper specifically deals with the, the critical power concept. So just maybe for our listeners, um, could you just give us a wee brief overview of, of critical power, what it is? Um. Yeah, sure. So um, as you mentioned, I think FTP will be the concept that most cyclists are aware of, as opposed to the physiologists will be probably aware of the critical power concept or the power duration concept. And, and really it's... Um, it was established based upon initially work done by some of the seminal physiologists, so A.B. Hill, for example, that, that looked to map uh, the world records for a range of distances and found that the, the relationship was hyperbolic. Um, it was really following on from that that the critical power concept started to come into play with some of this uh, physio physiology research. And ultimately, I mean, critical power itself has, has got probably multiple definitions within within research, but I like to look at it as a almost like a critical muscle metabolic and threshold for homeostatic control, if you like. So what I mean in layman's terms by that is it basically defines um, or, or it's the boundary that defines intensities at which you can achieve a steady state between intensities at which when you go above the critical power, um, you, you can't achieve a steady state and it's really just a, a ticking time bomb before you reach exhaustion. Uh, and that's the intensity that we, at least we classify in, in Exeter as the severe intensity domain. But uh, of course, the, the critical power concept or the power duration relationship or whatever you want to refer to it as incorporates both the critical power and, and the W prime. W prime is a little bit of a still of a, a bit of a grey area is, is exactly to what it represents. But ultimately, it's the amount that the current definition working definition is it's the current or it's the amount of work sorry that can be completed above the critical power and that obviously has uh, or is finite in in its amount so if you were to exercise a, a significant portion above the critical power 
then W prime is depleted much more quickly than it would be if you was to exercise just slightly above, maybe five watts above crystal power. Yeah, so just to, again, help our listeners a wee bit, we roll back a, a, a segment, you know, uh, so basically what we're talking about here is that, um, and, I, I'll, and I'll just use some arbitrary numbers to help our listeners a little bit. So yeah. obviously, if I ask the cyclist to cycle at, um, let's, this is in the severe domain, so let, let's go for a reasonably big number, let's go for 300 watts. So yeah. at 300 watts, uh, most cyclists will have, uh, at some point, they'll have to give up. So that could be a reasonable amount of time for good cyclists. But then if yeah. I get the same cyclist to cycle up 400 watts, clearly that amount of time that they're going to be able to keep going is significantly less. And yeah. if I get them to cycle up 500 watts, it's going to be even less again. Exactly. So basically, that relationship is a curve. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, it's, technically, it's a, a hyperbolic relationship, as you mentioned. So... The easy way for us as uh, sports scientists to, if we um, take the inverse of the, the power, then that gives us a straight line rather than a curve. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, the gradient of the straight line then usually relates to W prime, isn't that right? Yeah. Um, and then the uh, critical power is at the bottom of the line um, exactly. that you get. So, uh, I mean, so, the other way you could look at it from layman's terms is if we go back to the, the, the curve, is essentially that the critical power reflects the point at which the curve stabilizes, essentially, at the end of the curve. So, if you were to constantly keep mapping those distances, or we like to look at it as power, um, against how long you can maintain that, then the critical power is essentially the asymptote of that curve. And I think that's quite a nice way to look at it as well. Yeah. So uh, clearly, um, as why it's of, of importance, and you kind of alluded to it for um, sports scientists, is that uh, it's a it's a physiological phenomenon in yeah. the fact that it's a you know it has a metabolic basis um, that, as you mentioned, you know at and below critical power, there is this homeostasis or steady state where. On the whole, the body's coping with it reasonably well, and yeah. we don't have any of the variables like lactate or heart rate that's continually going up. And you can yeah. keep going for a good period of time, not indefinitely, clearly, because um, yeah. Yeah, ultimately other factors start to, to play a role. Yeah. And of course, training then is going to impact on, on this critical power. So that you know, the fitter you are, the higher the value that you can attain yeah. before you start to have this idea of eating into this reserve of W prime. So I think some people you might call it an anaerobic reserve, maybe as a, a little bit of a layman's term. We might not like to use that term as physiologists, mm -hmm. but um, as a sort of a layman's term, you can, most people understand this idea that you know anything that ends up anaerobic is on a short time scale and, and is of limited supply. Um, I think from a layman's terms, yeah, there's certainly an anaerobic reserve is probably the best way for a layman's terms to yeah understand the concept. Yeah, okay. So that that's so you were you 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 know in terms of the work you've done around modelling, you know this is a it's quite an elegant model. It links to some uh, proper physiology, 
uh, and has clearly been linked to performance outcomes as well. So, so it seems natural yeah. then to take it and look at it in the relationship between an actual race performance. So in this time, mm-hmm. in this case, it's a it's a time trial performance. Um, yeah. It's a t- ten mile or sixteen point one kilometer versus also um, the commonly now much more common uh, variable of of uh, FTP or functional threshold as it's it's known. So that's the whole basis of your paper is to, is to compare the outcome of those and you try to predict um, the time trial performance yeah. and then you look at it and compared to what the actual um, the actual outcome was. Yeah. So you're 12 participants um, and uh, reasonable level cyclists, uh, presume local club or something was the... Yeah, I think um, when I look back at the paper, um, I can't remember exactly how we define them, but I think we define them as, as competitive cyclists. But yeah. I guess if, if you look at the, the VO2, the VO2 uh, relative VO2 was on average about 64 mils per kilo per minute, I think. Um, pretty good. Which is pretty good, but it's uh, another thing to, to recognise there is that not only did we have a range, obviously, of, of cyclists and a range of ages, um, this was off season as well so in actual fact um i mean it's quite nice to define a group based upon something that you can agree a, a general term you can agree upon that upon that group itself but actually at least two of these cyclists are current professional cyclists now so mm. it's really just trying to highlight that actually this, this group of cyclists are actually fairly well trained, um, perhaps yeah. more trained than we wanted, than we physically could say with, you know, getting yeah. the uh, peer review and so on. So Yeah. So uh, just again, another marker of the quality of cyclists, you had a, a peak power output from a rank incremental test of, uh, of 427 watts, which again, yeah. pretty respectable. Yeah. I, I, I just a little question around that, because again, there are different ways of defining what that peak power output is was that any sort of average over a time period or an actual peak peak no so that was that was their peak power achieved so the the protocol that we use is a 30 watt ramp protocol um and so therefore it's essentially we're getting an increase in one watt per two seconds a gradual gradual increase so that is just the absolute you know um end point of the power output okay. within the incremental test sure because again, some some previous papers, and I know work I've done, you know, we, there's been a an average over a minute, the last minute or something, to try and eliminate any bursts or anything at the end or any spikes in power. But uh, so that that kind of helps because I, I have a question later that kind of relates to to that and, uh, yeah. and its relationship. So your 12 cyclists, say they completed a, a time trial. Uh, they did the um, critical power tests. Uh, and again, yeah. just to sort of help our listeners a little bit, um, the, the way of, of doing a critical power test is, you know, generally four to five separate trials to exhaustion. Mm. That's relatively high, uh, certainly in the severe domain. Um, of exercise exactly. so they all have to be above the critical power so you know you would have a for most of these cyclists you would have a ballpark idea once you've done a max test you would know roughly where the critical power is anyway um yeah. 
So how do you decide the power outputs? Was it just for the critical power test? No, so actually, um, the, uh, the protocol for critical power and W prime, the determination of the, the power duration relationship was, was distinctly different in the paper and it was one of the novel aspects. So we, we were really keen in trying to estimate the, the parameters of the power duration relationship based upon tests that would be considered normal for these cyclists training. So what we did um, was we loaded the bikes onto a static trainer and we, we got the participants to complete a set amount of work which related to a distance. Uh, that's a little bit sketchy, but give or take, uh, you, can, you can relate a given amount of work to an approximate distance. And then based upon that, we, we got a measure of average power output during that test. So it's different in comparison to the typical critical power um, protocol format where you would try and get, or you would know approximately where the, the gas exchange threshold is, or most people know that as the, the, the lactate threshold. And then we also had um, obviously the peak power output as well. And then we, by um, having knowledge of those two thresholds, we could, we could, or in the um, standard protocol of, of critical power determination, you can estimate pretty well that the subjects are, are exercising in the severe intensity domain at, at given power outputs. But obviously, we didn't have the luxury with this. So it was really a case of just having a go at where we thought that these participants would fit in terms of how long it would take them to complete a given amount of work. And that would be based upon the performance times and also based upon uh, how well they performed in their max test. And it was really just a manipulation of, of work around the previous time that they had completed that allowed us to determine critical power and W prime. So it's very different from, or, you know, different from, from previous ways of calculation of, of critical power and W prime, but but I say we were really keen on, on just maximizing ecological validity of this study. And it sort of it directly follows on from a previous study by a Matthew or Dr. Matthew Black, who's based at Exeter as well and completed his PhD under the supervision of, of Dr. Annie Van Hattelo as well. And his his thesis focused predominantly on critical power and the critical power concept. And one of his published studies, I think um, I can't remember the, the specific journal, but I can I can find that is he showed that the, the estimation of critical power was higher in and was associated with, with less error in its calculation when using a time trial protocol compared to a time to exhaustion protocol. And it was really, you know, some of the work that, that Matt had done that formed some of the basis of this particular study. So hopefully I've explained that fairly. Sure. Okay. So I, yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 I get it, yeah, so that, that's extremely useful. So uh, I, I think that you, you kind of summarized it well at the end there. So just again, to help our listeners that um, in lots of uh, studies that have been done when you have a trial, which is at a set power to exhaustion, we do mm -hmm. know that the performances are a lot more variable. Yes. And, less, and less consistent. Um, and if, if you compare that then to uh, the reverse, which as you suggested, is like a time trial. So it's to complete a set, yeah. set and in the time trial it's usually a set distance or a set amount of work. Yeah. Then in as short a period as possible, reliability can be extremely high, particularly for people who are used and practiced at 
time trialing and that type of uh, effort and pacing themselves. So, okay. so that, so that's the unique aspect here. So you didn't set a power and ask people to keep going as long as they can at that power. You set essentially a distance and said complete it as quick as you can. You then had the power yeah. and time data from from that information. Exactly, and what I should say is stated in the paper that. The, the cyclists, based upon where we thought they were performance-wise, their performance familiarization trials at a set amount of work. And it was that set amount of work during that familiarization trial that really helped us form the start of some of the estimation of what we'd expect them to complete um, in order to gain and you know arrange four to five trials within two, two and 15 minutes. So we, didn't, we say within approximately two and 15 minutes because we want to be sure that these trials are staying within the severe intensity domain. And that's important for estimation of, of critical power. As soon as we go below um, the severe intensity domain into the heavy or above into the extreme, then calculation of critical power becomes a lot more tricky and is associated with you know, a much higher amount of error in its measurement. Yeah. So I, I suppose one point to get across the entire listeners is uh, it's quite complicated, the estimation and calculation of critical power in terms of protocol and so on and everything. And it's, you know, um, now while, you know, maybe as physiologists, we might feel that it's superior to many other measures, mm -hmm. um, it's certainly not straightforward and requires a certain amount of uh, skill in terms of uh, the person who's uh, completing or executing the trial to know what intensities, how to build it up the uh, profile that is required, because you need more than, you know, you, you mentioned 45 trials, you need a good number of data points, at least four, to be able to model um, the curve uh, accurately. So, so it's good, it's a good test and it's well established and has a good physiological basis, but um, it's, it's difficult to, difficult to perform. Yeah, I think so. But um, you could you could turn on its head, and we didn't really get it across uh, in the paper because it wasn't the main focus of the paper. But it's important to note that these kind of trials, these severe intensity trials that we that we conducted in the laparoscopic trainer, can easily be incorporated into rides. I mean, th this study in itself was completed in 2014, so there's a bit of a delay in getting it published. But back then, and I know that I say back then, it's only five years ago, but um, power meters weren't as common as they are now. It seems like everyone has a power meter now. So actually, these kind of short bursts, exhausted bursts, can be easily incorporated into training rides. And I don't think necessarily, or I'm pretty confident, that you don't necessarily need to perform these trials within a lab or specifically as separate from your training. These could just be incorporated into training rides, maybe one you know, you, you can grad, you can start building these um, efforts, if you like, into, sure. a, into a spreadsheet to calculate critical power. So it's, it's not a case of, and I should say, the actual calculation of critical power, as long as in a, you can put it together in a really simple spreadsheet. Yeah. Once you've got the numbers and the figures, the calculation of these parameters are, are, are remarkably easy. Sure. So, I think when we look at it that way, it becomes a lot more easier to yeah. identify and to measure critical power. Mm. Yeah, I, I think we'll just uh, we need to remember to come back at that at the end in terms of practical um, implications, because yeah. I think that's a really good point. Um, so the, the, 
I just want to deal for a second then on the actual uh, time trial. So everybody did time trial on the same day on a on a set course, uh, 10 miles, 16.1 kilometre course, which is uh, a typical out and back uh, course. And then in, in figure one of your paper, you have um, the mean pacing strategies. Um, yeah. So it was a, a flat course. Uh, with relatively, as you say, uh, minimal uh, changes in gradient uh, uh, yeah. and elevation. Yeah, I think we reported it. I think we reported it in the paper. I'm not sure if we did the elevation, but yeah, minimal elevation. Yeah. Um, um, but I was a little bit surprised based on that, looking at how variable the power output was. Because um, I kind of, I even looked at it and thought, well, quite often there's a, you know, a, a big spike that you get when they turn around and so on and there is a bit of a lift there but it seems a bit more prolonged than that and I wasn't really quite sure why why it was so you know as uh, variable as that and I suppose my second question related to that then is um, why you know for the same group of people I suppose it's the difference between being inside and outside if we compare it to figure four which was the 20 minute which is roughly the same yeah it's it's a, it's a really good question actually and it's something that we discussed when when going through peer review and one of the reviewers actually commented on it themselves but so we, we discussed we discussed the whole idea that uh figure one or the profile at the time on the road wasn't quite what we expected and um, yeah, and it's certainly an interesting point. And as certainly as you mentioned, when we look at Figure Four, which is the the mean profile of the FTP profile, that's that's something much more we expect to see. Um, mm -hmm. One one key difference to remember between the two is one is on the road, and and the the FTP test was was on the static trainer inside the lab, so it's much more easily controlled. Um, yeah. But it did surprise us, and and in. To be perfectly honest, no, we, we can't really answer that. Um, there could be a number of factors. So perhaps it was because it was pre-season and perhaps they weren't accustomed to that 10, or not so much the distance, also accustomed to the distance, but perhaps they weren't accustomed to that time trial distance at that time in the season. I'm not sure. Um, some of these perhaps, maybe some of the cyclists, it wasn't a prerequisite of the study. Perhaps some of them haven't performed 10-mile time trials before. Perhaps you know, didn't yeah. pace, pace themselves as well as they should have done. Um, the, the course itself, it was very much an out or very similar to an out and back. You'll notice from the text, it went out seven kilometers mm -hmm. and then came back. So actually, started off on almost like a side road. We were very fortunate to have an excellent cycle, cycle club and Jacob Durant, who, who worked or who was cycling with them at the time. And they actually set the time trial up as, a, as an official time trial, which was really nice. So we had certain roadblock block offs. So we we can't say anything about the traffic, for example, that would have influenced our results. But certainly on the turnaround, we had a round, we had a roundabout on the turnaround. I, I don't know those kind of mm -hmm. you know, influences yeah. that can have an effect. But what I should what I will say is that um, that the beauty of the uh, being able to predict our performance based upon um, a, a power and measuring device. So the the um, the hub that we use um, during the time trial is that all these kind of factors, so even you could talk about weather, for example, so wind resistance, all these kind of factors will 
will be incorporated into the amount of work that they complete during that time trial. And that's why we, we are fairly confident that uh, measurements of critical power and predictions of time trial performance were quite robust because actually we had a power meter on the bike that calculated the amount of work that they completed. And it wasn't necessarily the distance that we were predicting, it was the amount of work that they completed during that distance. I know that got, that went off on a tangent, yeah. but ultimately we... Yeah, no, no, we, no, we, I think, it's, I, I think it's a really important point to, to draw out, you know, from our own experience and my experiences that, you know, frequently we as sports scientists will carry out uh, labs and simul uh, tests and simulations in the lab. And mm. uh, the reality is when you put somebody out in the real world, you know, the actual physiological demands are not quite the same. Exactly. And I think, you know, the variability and the power output really demonstrates that. Um, so, you know, um, and, you know, I suppose arguably now we have discussed it in a couple of episodes of, of Cycling Science podcast, uh, the increase in swifting and, and indoor training. Mm. You know, while you can get really good physiological preparation for um, mm. racing, when it comes to the real world, mm. you know, there are minor fluctuations in the road in terms of you've been able to maintain a constant power output. There are other factors, wind and, and uh, turnarounds and, and other uh, aspects to negotiate. So for the time trialist, you know, indoor doesn't always translate exactly to outdoor. Exactly. Um, Absolutely. Okay, so, uh, so they did the time trial. Um, one other thing before we start to move on to look at the, the comparison between the different methods so uh, was you also then made a prediction on their time trial performance? And the prediction, get me right, this, the prediction was a time prediction. So could you just lead us through how you get from some of the tests you had done to a predicted time for the time trial? Yeah, so this is based upon the, the equations are in the paper, so I can, I'll perhaps refer the, the, the listeners to, to the equations so that they can make sense of them. Um, but, but ultimately, according to the power duration relationship, we can estimate a given time to complete a, a given distance or a given amount of work. You can rearrange these equations however you wish in order to, according to the data that you got, to to calculate a given amount of time you'd expect it you'd expect an individual to complete a given amount of in this example work could be distance for example as well so during the lab trials what we did as we briefly mentioned earlier is we, we got the participants to complete a number of exhaustive trials which was either four or five trials in the lab and through that we mapped or modeled um the power duration relationship and, and got an estimate I uh, got a fairly good estimate in, in all three models of the critical power and their W prime. And we used that in combination with the amount of work they completed in the time trial. So it's important to note that we retrospectively um, predicted time trial um, performance or time trial time, completion time. Because otherwise you wouldn't be able to without the amount of work that they complete during that during that trial. Uh, that was that was one of my questions because <laughs> I yeah. haven't read through the paper the first time. I was thinking, hang on a minute here. Yeah, there's an equation here, but there's two variables that we don't know. Yes, so exactly. having knowledge that it was retrospective, uh, yes. then the penny drops because otherwise you can't 
It's really important to note, and this is something that we discussed with the, with the reviewers, is the purpose of this paper is not to see how well we can predict performance for predicting performance purpose, if that makes sense. It's more of a case yeah, of yeah. how well can something as the critical power, so a physiological parameter, how well can that predict performance? And if it can predict performance really well, then it means that in terms of its significance to in this example, 10 mile time trial performance is is remarkably high, and which obviously is what we we illustrated. So I don't really see. I mean, you, you could talk about um, estimation of or prediction of performance based upon talent identification, for example, but that's not the purpose of, of this particular paper. So hopefully that clears that up. I suppose my other little question, again, based on some of the work that. that Gosh, uh, I was involved with maybe 15 years ago. Um, the uh, we uh, when when we did this type of work, we decided that we and it was partly unlike you. Um, some of the predictions we were doing, the cyclists weren't cycling on the same course on the same day, which uh, essentially says that hopefully the variables that influence time are consistent across the riders. Mm. Um, we actually did it against performance power. Um, to try and eliminate everything else. Um, so, uh, you know, in some respects, then you can, what we did is obviously lab based tests to be able to predict field based power, average power over the duration of the race. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was a paper by you know, the James Balmer, it was part of his PhD. And, yeah. you know, it was really, uh, we, we, we had a, a, an R value of 0.99, which was remarkable and that was just looking at peak in our case it was minute uh, maximum minute power so maximum minute power was able to predict outdoor 10 mile time trial very well um when you were just looking at power you couldn't you couldn't predict time because you couldn't predict the environment uh, environmental conditions um I guess the beauty of um, our model, um, in which we, again this is something that we discussed with the reviewer, is that by having the power meters and incorporating the amount of work that they completed as part of the equation, um, obviously we needed the power meters to calculate work, is that work will incorporate changes to the environment. So for example, uh, wind resistance, to overcome wind resistance, it might take them long, longer to complete a given distance but that will be reflected in uh, the power that's produced and the power that we're measuring on the bike. So that, that's that's a reason why we use this kind of model is because we knew that those factors could be limited by taking that kind of approach. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right, yeah. No, I, I, you know, it's one of these things that's, um, and I, I think it's, I, it's the reason that I don't like you know, and in your case, it's slightly different in terms of what you were trying to do here. But just basic trying to predict a, a performance time is is extremely difficult and probably not yeah. worthwhile from a, no. an individual athlete point of view. No. Um, but all you can do is, you know, use power. I, I usually use the analogy that, you know, when you know what power you can maintain for a certain rough duration, so looking at the power duration uh, equation. Then you can use that as a as a rev counter for your 
performance monitoring during the event. So everybody, most people have parameters today, so they can use that as a, I like to see it as a rev counter. So it enables you to rev your own engine up to the red line, but not significantly into the red, so that you know that you at that point in time are getting the best performance. Now, the time that is the time, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. But you come back and you go, actually, on that day, I've ridden my body, my current training status, to the best that I possibly can. Yes. So I think this is this, as, as I mentioned, this some work that I believe, not that I'm involved in any of it or I've seen any of it, but I believe Philip uh, Skeeber is, is doing some work um, on this, or at least he's wanted to for a number of years, where you basically you, you develop a device that, that incorporates someone's critical power and measurements of their W prime based upon measurements of in the lab or fill based on and so on, uh, and calculations of the power duration relationship, that essentially connects to a power meter device on the bike so that you can fairly accurately within a small amount of error, so usually about 5% for critical power, 10% W prime, um, you, you can essentially calculate if for a given amount of power output that that particular individual is cycling at that given moment in time, how long can they maintain that uh, particular uh, intensity or, or power output? How, how long can they maintain it before W prime is completely expended and therefore they're working at a maximal intensity at their critical critical power and i think that would be a really nice something really nice to come out of this line of research really in the power duration relationship research is, is to develop that kind of device that really is highly applicable to cycling performance i think that'd be really uh, really useful because one of the things that strikes me is and uh, you know i uh, I often sort of have to try and explain this to, to coaches and, and cyclists about the the potential uh, physics and the manipulation of the physics of, of headwind, uh, tailwind, and uphill downhill. Mm. So as you as you, you're probably aware, you know that there's been quite a bit of research in the pacing strategy where if you you can physiologically, uh, as long as you've got enough W prime left, and that's the, the, the link, if you've got enough W prime left, you could yeah. set at 5% above your threshold for that distance duration yeah. uh, into the headwind and yeah. up the hill. Um, yeah. And the physics tells you that in terms of overall pace, that's way quicker. So mm. we know that we can manipulate the physics what we this sounds like a way of being able to monitor the physiology that allows you to manipulate the physics of, of time trial in, in those conditions. Yeah. So I would have thought that would have been a really useful a really useful tool. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's just true when when you start to consider the kind of factors that can influence the expenditure of W prime and so on, it becomes really tricky. I think to design not that's that not being involved in any of the research in that area, but I think it'd be a really nice the big next step in that area. Yeah, yeah, good. So, uh, you know, we, we kind of we'll, we'll move on to some of the results, you know, that you've, the key results. And obviously, the one of the things that you were uh, really interested in was sort of the comparison between the different methods, you know, of FTP. So we're all fairly familiar usually with FTP, and most people calculate it by doing a 20-minute test, um, which gives you a value, and you do 0.95 that, uh, yeah. times 0.95. Uh, this is the supposedly the magic um, FTP. Yeah. Of course, um, uh, in the literature and sort of even in the uh, the lay 
I uh, say coaching uh, material, there's a lot of criticism of the 0.95. How could it possibly be a consistent number yeah. for everybody? So yeah. I think probably we are going to both agree that that's um, quite uh, a step of a leap of faith uh, in terms of uh, using that um, conversion factor. Um, yeah. However, that's, that's what's out there in the literature. I'm actually not aware of anything else that is more appropriate. In my view, is why bother multiplying it by 0.95? If you're looking for some form of anchor, why not just deal with the number that you've got from your 20-minute test? Does it yeah. make any difference that you multiply it by 0.95? I don't know. I don't think so, personally. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. I mean, for, first and foremost, and I guess I think it extends what you said, saying, but the 95% is far too arbitrary. Um, I'm not really sure where, where you get it from. But when you look at the definition of, of uh, FTP, according to, I mean, we focused on the Coggan book, which I think is where most people look at it or started to, to look into FTP. Um, it does sound very much like critical power in terms of how long it can be sustainable for and the, the kind of intensities at which, which these individuals are, are exercising at. It sounds very much like critical power, but... What, what, what I should say, and what we highlighted in the papers, wasn't important part paper, is that by looking at the 95% of uh, a 20-minute time trial, then you're assuming that the other 5% is W prime, and we know that that is not the case. So we know that if an individual has a high critical power, um, which they can do, obviously, or they, they can get a higher FTP or whatever during these kind of trials, it doesn't necessarily mean they've always got a high W prime. If anything, it means that if they've got a high critical power, they've probably got a small W prime. And that's just the nature of someone being more predominantly type one, someone being more predominantly type two muscle fibers and more explosive against more oxidative aerobic and so on. Whereas the, the 20 minute time trial, the, the big problem I had with it, when I started to collect the data, I didn't think about it before, I don't know why, but it's that, when I looked at all the data, all the people with the high critical power had the highest W prime, and that just physiologically doesn't really make sense. Um, I'm not saying that, I mean, if, if an individual was very highly aerobically trained against someone who's sedentary, then it's quite possible that they've not only got a higher critical power, that they've got a higher W prime, but within a given trained population, if someone has got a higher critical power, the chance is their W prime is lower as a result of that. So that was really the, the big thing for me. But as you say, whether it makes a huge difference as it's 95, I mean, it's acting as a boulder anyway, the critical power, we know there's error in the critical power measurement. So yeah, I, I agree. But I think one important physiological aspect to take from the FTP test is that the 5% value, arbitrary value, doesn't relate well at all to the W prime. And I think that's a really important thing to consider with that test. Mm, yeah, it takes me back to some data I collected many years ago from actual uh, time trial races. So this does go back just when parameters were were coming out, uh, yeah. and certainly were probably only available in labs. Yeah. Um, but lucky enough to get enough data. So you know, I had data all the way from sort of twelve hour, hundred miles, fifty miles, twenty five, ten miles. So if mm. you plot, you know, the those uh, on the x axis um, in terms of the duration. And then on the y-axis, if you plot um, what the value is, is the percentage of um, uh, maximum minute power. Mm. 
Okay. Uh, the relationship's quite interesting because you can kind of see probably um, below, or sorry, in durations that are longer than an hour, there's a, you know, in fact, what I tried to do was to, to put a model to it and it was, wasn't possible to have any single model. So there was a, mm. an underlying linear relationship anything up beyond one hour yeah uh, it's fairly linear but uh, once you get under an hour and get to the 10 miles uh, uh, so it's 25 and 10 miles um, it looked as if it was more of a power function yeah. so in my view and that actually reflects what we're talking about here so the linear line would be more around the critical power mm. element uh, whereas the power function which allowed you to seemingly work at a much higher percentage than would be expected from any linear uh, process or any consistent metabolic process. Um, that seemed to be you know, elevated. So that it makes sense because arguably in a shorter distance and we, for 10 miles, we would consider a shorter distance. You can have, and we, we collected quite a significant amount of data, lactate data from post 10 and 25 mile time trials in these particular studies as well. You can say that there is a, a, a much more anaerobic and potentially W prime contribution to a, a 10 mile time trial. So Absolutely. anybody who might be a specialist, you know, you would think the training needs to be focused both on increasing critical power, but also giving yourself as much W prime or anaerobic capacity to uh, to cope with the intensity and the short duration. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, so I think that does does kind of add up, but I would still agree with you. You know, it's, um, there is, uh, you know, the, the W prime is, a, you know, while we don't fully understand it, it is a trainable uh, element, and to say that it's always five percent probably doesn't make sense. No, exactly. So the re so the relationship that you find was arguably similar between the. The critical power and, and actual time trial performance in minutes and, and the FTP and uh, the actual time trial performance. So there wasn't, uh, yeah. in terms of, sort of plain R, R values, 0 0.89 and 0 0.87, so there wasn't a huge difference. Yeah. However, um, when you look at the, uh, the, the relationship with uh, FTP and critical power, it's not as strong as you might imagine. So that does say that in some respects there is, is there a difference between what's being measured? I think um, there's, there's two things to point out from, from there. Firstly, I think, is that actually I, I was I was surprised. I mean, yes, the critical power and FTP are not exactly the same thing uh, according to uh, measurements, but within measurement error, I, I was quite surprised by how well they correlated. I mean, they were, they were within limits of agreement or within fair limits of agreement they're fairly large but the actual correlation i think if i, if I remember back to the critical power and ftp was i think 0.92 and a lot of those yeah, yeah. particular yeah. participants were they fit fairly close to the line of identity so i was quite surprised that the critical power and ftp were uh quite or that close given like i say the kind of measurement yeah. kind of measurement error that creeps in um we, we couldn't quite say they were the same thing because the limits of agreement perhaps are a little bit too large for, for cyclists and coaches, I think. But they're, they're yeah. fairly close. And I think um, going back to the uh, terms of predicting prediction of performance, if, if they're not too dissimilar, then perhaps 
you know, it's not much of a surprise that they both predict performance quite well, but also yeah. to a similar extent. But, but what's also important to know is the FTP test is in terms of duration is remarkably similar to the mean duration of the cyclists or the completion time of, of this particular group of cyclists. I think it was 26. So in the fact that a 20 minute time trial can predict 26 minute time trial duration is, is not surprising either, obviously. So um, that's two things just to note there. Yeah. I say, of course, the, as we mentioned earlier, the only difference would be one inside and one out. Yeah. Uh, the, also, just looking at the, the graph, which is the comparison between the critical power and the FTP, you yeah. know, as you say, most people were on the line of identity. There were, you had a couple of outliers there. One, one of your higher FTPs uh, and one of the, the well, the lowest uh, seemed to be, you know, the uh, critical power was significantly lower compared to the, um, the FTP. Yeah. That, you know, that's interesting, you know, just to when I was looking at it and I felt to myself, mm, I wonder what that data would look like if um, if they weren't there. Because, it, I, again, I think if you if you translate that across to the, the limits of agreement, again, the two, the same two uh, have a significant impact. One of them is actually outside mm -hmm. the lower limit of agreement. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's intriguing uh, why, you know, what, what, what is it about those individuals? We can't really say. I mean, it's something that bugged us. And you say that it, 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 you'd imagine it would be nice to see. I can send you the data because we mapped it because we were interested to see what happened. And, um, and it's remarkably good. Um, now, when we go back to the prediction of um, uh, performance based upon the power duration relationship, so incorporating the critical power in W prime, that's the figure that's, I think, figure 2A. And you'll notice that the there's a bunch of cyclists that are fairly well grouped, and there's one that's slightly outside, which obviously is, is the mm -hmm. least more trained. Now, when we take that individual out of the um, prediction as well, the, the prediction of performance based upon critical power and W prime together is remarkably good. Um, I think the error was something like 0.8% or something different. So um, yeah. I think that's something that we can take from that, that perhaps the power duration model for predicting performance is better. I mean, this is, this is going based upon one subject, but it could be that it is better and it would make sense if it was better for well-trained subjects. Despite the fact that during these trials, we, we made sure that they attained the max so that they're in severe intensity trial. It might be that perhaps he's, that, that particular individual wasn't well accustomed to time trial performance and perhaps his performance time wasn't justified based upon his trials within the lab, which which seems reasonable. Um, but it was, I guess, it was somewhat frustrating in looking at the comparison of critical power and FTP that we had two subjects that were much further away from the mean difference than the rest of the group, because one of them obviously was was the least trained, and one of them was the was the best trained, if you like. So it is yeah. a it was a little frustrating because we couldn't really relate it. I think if they were both down the lower end of the scale, then we could say that perhaps these parameters, because you know that they seem to be better suited for well-trained individuals, that perhaps the the comparison of critical power and FTP is much better um, at the higher end of the scale in terms of training status. But 
it's difficult. We I can't really provide a, an explanation for it because yeah, there is none for this. But it is certainly yeah. Yeah. I think I suppose this is a, probably a nice way to sort of wrap up and get to some of our recommendations from from the paper. It's uh, it's one of the dilemmas that we have as sports scientists is that uh, we are working with real people. <laughs> they don't always conform to the model that we think they are. Um, and um, you know, then then you're left scratching your head trying to work out, oh, why does that piece of data not seemingly match all the rest? Um, I played around with the data, and I'm more than happy to send this to you the, the spreadsheet. But I played around with the data and um, and had separate tabs on what if we use the 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 critical power or the power duration parameters that had the least amount of error to it. What happens then? Which is what we did do. What, which is on practice, and what happens when you use the parameters, so the critical power and FTP that seem to be uh, the closest matched, um, depending on the model that you use for critical power determination. And if you manipulate those variables, which of course would be right for scientific purposes and publication purposes, um, you, you can get them remarkably close. Um, and the same goes for prediction of performance. So if you manipulate the model used very slightly, then just by chance, also than than anything else, because we, we uh, optimise the uh, the use of the critical power models for each individual based upon the amount of error associated with its measurement, then you you can get the performance time within very close to I think it was about 0.2 percent, which is ridiculous. But but of course for the purpose of the paper, we we used the model that was associated. I think it's, uh, you know, it is one of the, the dilemmas of, you know, we, you then get uh, accused of massaging the data. Um, exactly. but, uh, yeah, exactly. but there, is, there is a balance to be held and, and our reviewers uh, in these cases keep us, keep us on the right path, one would hope. I suppose the other little question I have as well is, I, I did mention it earlier, is that um, you used the peak uh, power output, um, you know, which was uh, the average was 427, and your average time trial power was 296, which uh, I roughly worked out, which was 69%, which uh, is certainly low compared to if you're doing it on an average for a minute, for your minute uh, peak power. Um, you know, my, my recollection from the sort of stuff that we did, you would be sort of 80, 81%. Uh, been able to sustain of a of a minute max power, um, and those to me from a you know I'm trying to take it on to sort of uh, advice for for coaches and so on, you know you can you know based on even a 20 minute test or a max ramp test, it is possible to create um, a conversion factor which can be a really good start point for a, a pacing strategy for yeah. an individual. Yeah. Now, a good coach is going to then take that on and develop and look at the individuality of that cyclist and see whether they can maintain above that or not um, and look at different training methods by which they can increase uh, the sustainable power output for the for time trials. But certainly, um, you know, even within whatever error there is, actually the error between translating a Either, as you mentioned, you know, a 20-minute test to predict a 10-mile time trial is always going to be pretty good, yeah, just by the sheer nature that they're so similar. Um, yeah. But I say it is possible to look at percentages of a, of a max power 
um, to predict mm -hmm. over a larger range of durations as well. And it'll certainly yeah. get you a good start point. I think it's a good starting point. The, the, the couple of things to note is one is differences, as you mentioned, differences in protocol determination of the, of the VO2 max or the peak power. Um, but also variations, physiological variations in, in the thresholds. So where does their lactate threshold? So most people define that as the first increase in blood lactate. Where, where does that sit in relation to the peak power? Where does the critical power sit in relation to the peak power? And those, those don't always shift um, uniformly across individuals. So just because someone's got a higher VO2 max doesn't necessarily mean they've got a higher critical power, or just because they've got a higher critical power doesn't mean they've got a higher lactate threshold. So that that those are two points really that's that is important to consider. But I certainly agree that I think it's a good starting point. And you know, as long as you know roughly in regards to the test, roughly where you'd expect those kind of individuals' critical power to be, for example, or their lactate threshold, then I think it's a nice starting point. But of course, that is going to be variable depending on the specific max protocol that you decide on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so just to sum up, obviously, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the, the detail of the, the paper and some of the, the methods uh, available, but certainly critical power uh, done by the method you've described, which is slightly different because you've used a, a total work are a, a set work done to as part of your process of creating your critical power yeah. um, still seems extremely valid and good at predicting performance um, and and been used in a, in a in a retrospective way as well you know so it, it predicts the the real outdoor performance uh, it, pretty well you know within the limits of experimental um, error and individual variability yeah um, it, it gives you a similar number, or FTP is a similar-ish number. They're yeah. not the same, um, yeah. Yeah. and they, while they do correlate, they arguably they're not. They're certainly not measuring the same thing, um, you know, physiologically. No. Um, so the main thing is just being cautious at this early time. Is just being cautious around FTP, and as a physiologist, I'm always going to support. The notion of using critical power over functional threshold power because of, you know, the the significant amount of scientific work that has gone into critical power as a concept, and obviously, as we mentioned earlier, incorporating critical power and W prime are important for prediction as well. Important for um, and monitoring changes in performance and so on. You know, following the training program, for example. But yeah, um, yeah. Now, just to go back in that, you know, you suggested earlier that you know, you know, and we discussed that the critical power, you know, we certainly from a physiological point of view is superior because it's got, you know, it's essentially a two-component model. You don't really have that in FTP at all, no. Um, no. or sorry, you've constrained it into a ratio of ninety-five-five, no. which is is quite artificial. No. Um, but it's possible to do that without a lab. Um, and arguably, obviously, nowadays, you know, with the various um, uh, parameters and also analysis software, it's possible to do that. It generally nearly spits out for you anyway, because it'll give you, you know, uh, your uh, your best average for set periods of time. So that's ten, five seconds, ten seconds, a minute, five minutes, and so on. So in theory, with that data, as long as you're confident with those being as good an effort as possible, you could create a power time 
relationship and thus do some of this. Exactly. Um, as you mentioned then, was making sure you know it's maximal. I mean, in the lab, we measure VO2 max because we know VO2 max is obtained in the severe intensity domain. But ultimately, if you're, as you mentioned, if you're confident that it's a maximum weight within that given time frame, then absolutely there's no mean, you know, no reason whatsoever that they can't um, start to, uh, you know, map the power duration relationship for themselves. So it's, it's a really easy thing to yeah. do to data and offer the data. Yeah. So a good coach and, and along or a good rider would be able to take that data um, and bear in mind the sort of you know ideally to you, you mentioned it earlier about the you know it needs to be in a time frame probably less than 12-ish minutes um, you know to, to have the proper curve um, sort of between sort of uh, I suppose 30 seconds and 12 minutes a minute and 12 minutes that sort of range would give you enough of a profile uh, to, uh, we go for around sort of minimum two minutes ish but you'll notice in the paper that I had a, a trial that I think was about 90 seconds so it really depends on the individual but I think if you was to go for between two and 12 minutes then you're fairly safe there and confident that that, that would map critical plan W prime quite nicely and uh, I suppose that um, you know I think we discussed a little bit about W prime. It's it's an area that's probably ripe for a bit more uh, research, but uh, arguably it's got lots of potential utility if we can develop um, methods of looking at well how much have you got left. Um, yeah. You could I suppose imagine it as a as a, a high octane fuel tank, and uh, if you knew exactly how much nitro that you had left. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for any given point in time that that would be quite useful i, I think yeah uh, probably, but, but we're not there yet we're not there yet no paul no. uh it's been it's been a great uh discussion i've i've enjoyed it i hope our listeners uh, enjoy it and yeah. um um uh, again thank you very much uh much for your time oh no problem no problem at all So let's uh, dive into our uh, news section and uh, I suppose the first part of our, our news section uh, in this episode is, is a rather um, sad event. Um, I'm sure many of you uh, may have already um, read in the press about um, um, the death of, of Kelly Caitlin. Uh, Kelly was a, a very talented um, 23-year-old American cyclist, a multiple uh, world champion on the track and uh, Olympic silver medalist in the team pursuit in, in Rio. Um, I suppose not only was uh, Kelly a really talented uh, cyclist, um, she was obviously uh, multi-talented, um, uh, was a, a, a musician, a violinist, um, and played football at a reasonably high level and uh, also uh, was academically uh, very gifted as she was uh, in the midst of a master's degree in computational um, mathematics. So obviously our uh, condolences go out to 
um, her family and, and her friends. And I think while uh, none of us uh, hosts, none of the hosts of the, this podcast would claim to have any um, expertise in, in, in mental health or, 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 or psychology uh, per se, um, I think it was it is important for us to just talk about um, you know the fact that uh, such a, a gifted uh, cyclist did did end up um, sort of uh, taking her own life because um, I think some of, there's a couple of reasons I think some of the circumstances around her death um, why we we I suppose one of the issues about suicide is that quite often we never really fully understand, you know, what caused that person to, to take their own life. Um, but I think there are, um, uh, certainly in the press, there are suggestions that a crash that, uh, that she had at the end of the year um, resulted in uh, some concussion that possibly led to her attempting uh, suicide at the end of January. Um, and of course then um, last week um, she attempted again and, and, and was successful. So guys, I'd, I don't know if you want to come in here and, and, and add your own thoughts. I, th- I think um, echo uh, the condolences to the family initially, Richard, and it's, it's a very sad story. Um, I feel a bit uncomfortable talking about it, quite frankly as well, because it is so difficult a topic to talk about for me it's the concussion part of it that is why um, we should talk about it in this context I suffered a really bad concussion in 2016 so a couple of years ago out of my road bike it, it took me a good nine months I would say before I actually came round and felt like I wasn't feeling normal again and and just being able to travel in a car, for instance, etc., without feeling motion sickness, etc. Um, and within cycling, we know there's a prevalence, in particular within mountain biking and the sport that myself and Leslie would be dealing with. We see concussion uh, being very prevalent in that, and it's a, it's a very serious issue and something that we do see now being taken more seriously. In fact, we have a study ongoing with Enduro World Series uh, looking at injury uh, prevalence and injury epidemiology part of that was driven by concussion within the, within that sport so it's about how you deal with those concussions I suppose, taking them forward and then um, is a ways that we can make the sport and the sports safer so that we have less prevalence of, of uh, concussion within those sports because we do, we do now know that it's, it's um, it takes a, a long time or potentially can take a long time to, to heal that or to heal up from the concussion and, and I go back to a, a very interesting talk uh, presentation at the Cycling Science World Congress in Nantes in 2018 that I attended and it was from one of the, the team docs just before um, the, the, the start of the, the Tour de France and he picked up on a concussion and a, a brain injury from one of the athletes and it was just simply through an app but basically it's data gathering finding out are, are people acting normally and he realised that that person wasn't it wasn't a normal situation for him to have headaches and when they went back and, and they had him scanned and there was a problem 
So again, it is about trying to raise, I suppose what we're trying to do today is raise awareness again, that if you do have a concussion, we need to take this seriously and, and seek help. And, uh, and that help potentially can be not just in terms of medical help, in terms of the actual physical, but it could be around the, the well-being as well, the mental health and well-being. And I would also just like to add my condolences to Kelly's family and friends um, during this really hard time. And following on from G's, I absolutely believe, you know, um, all of the concussion rates that we're seeing. It's really important that as researchers we start to understand this a little bit more and see what we can put in place. But also I'd like to touch upon just the mental health aspect of things as well. And I think that it's really important um, that we are starting to speak about it more in elite sport, that we're recognising it and that um, we're trying to ensure that athletes have a voice if they feel that that's um, something that they are struggling with. Um, and I think um, Richard, you alluded to it earlier, we were talking about the coach's role in this. And I think we've all worked with athletes um, and, you know, we were questioning where where where's our training for this and, and where should we go next from that yeah i think it's you know i think for me sort of some of the takeaway messages you know um concussion may have been a part of this uh, sad sad event um you know however you know we you know we are aware and it's you know it's increasingly you know, there are young people, it's not unusual for young people, in fact, I think the statistics say even young men are, are much more uh, susceptible to, to take their own life. And, you know, it's it's an age group that we're, you know, as coaches, we're likely to come into contact, you know, young people. And, and you know, as, as Les says, you know, where's, where is the training for coaches to, first of all, recognise um, some of the symptoms that somebody's... Um, you know, finding themselves in a dark place um, that that could, you know, and I I even know from my own cycling club of a young uh, cyclist who took his own life, um, and you know it, it's a incredibly sad scenario. And I think we've probably heard the saying many times before: it's it's the people that are left behind that that continually ask questions and blame themselves partly, or or wish they'd done something differently. Um, and I suppose maybe my plea would be is can we develop some training for, for coaches to help us to recognise um, some of the symptoms? And of course, we also have to think sometimes the environment that we create as coaches or, or that national organisations create. Now, Kelly was a very talented cyclist, quickly um, found herself in, in the, the US uh, team, you know, going to Olympics. And, and that in itself creates a lot of stress. And we know, you know, there's very recent um, press and, and court cases, in fact, uh, from British Cycling in terms of potentially a bullying or um, a, an over-demanding atmosphere. So I think, you know, there is a bit of a, uh, I don't know, a... Uh, a need for us to make sure that we don't actually um, contribute um, to uh, you know individuals who who may have uh, a mental state that's more vulnerable. Of course, we can turn this around, and I think it's important to finish on a on a positive as well and say that you know we know of and it's very clearly documented where um, you know for individuals who. Um, have got some mental health issues, exercise is really good for you on the whole. 
Uh, that may not be exercise at Olympic level. It may not be good for your mental health, but certainly exercise is good. And it does, for many uh, people, help their symptoms. And we know of projects, and biking projects. Yeah, we've just com you know, completed a, a project with our, our partners who are developing mountain biking in Scotland, who are part of Scottish Cycling, and with uh, Dr Tony Westbury, uh, and also uh, with uh, NHS Borders in, in Scotland, and it was around mental health and well-being and, and mountain biking. And we've got some really interesting results, but one of the results that are coming out of that and the impact of that. There's actually a really nice video if people want to uh, check it out. It's on the Developing Mountain Biking in Scotland website on Vimeo. And uh, you can see what we, what was actually happening with that project. But it is about training the trainers. And it's that, what you're talking about again, how as we as coaches can we um, start to recognise and how do we deal with these. And so I think it's a really useful point you're making there, Richard. And that's what's coming out of that uh, that project as well. It was beneficial and it was useful but there was also recognition of like there needs to be something done in, in terms of upskilling of the coaches and, and giving them training to, to potentially recognize some of these situations we're not saying coaches become psychologists or psychoanalysts what, what we're saying is you can give them a tool a toolkit that they can then hopefully use when they're with different athletes that's great i think we'll, we'll try and, and obviously uh, see if we can have a chat with tony um, get a bit more detail on that project because it certainly sounds sounds very interesting. Yeah, we will do. Okay, moving on to uh, the next piece of news. Um, um, disturbing news for for many of us uh, who, who love our sport um, of cycling. It, it's it's been tarnished for many years with with uh, doping issues, and uh, and we now have a, another one where we have uh, two uh, cyclists. Uh, Stefan Defenil and George Peeler who have both confessed and, and the reason they've confessed is that um, actually there was a, a Nordic skier who was caught um, it was a police investigation um, and was caught blood doping um, and obviously the two riders were part of this um, scheme, process, whatever um, and therefore felt that they, they, they had to uh, now confess um, Disturbing guys, I, you know, it's it's sad for our sport. Absolutely, um, I think cycling world has been battling doping for um, a very long time and trying to clean up the sport and give people belief back in it. And um, to hear of this is quite sad. Mm. I think uh, as well, you know, I suppose. Um, you know, it's, our sport has been, uh, you know, subject to an awful lot of uh, accusations about doping and, and certainly it has taken place. But I suppose I, I always like to try and counter it a little bit and I'd say at least as a sport, probably more than any other sports, and maybe it's because we had a bigger problem, but we have tried to eradicate it and we have brought in uh, many different schemes um, and you know so take for example you know the the one thing that should have detected this is what's called the biological passport and, and cycling were the first sport uh, to bring in the biological passport so they brought that in in 2008 and so just a little bit of a background for for those of you who may not know what the biological passport is um, the aim of it was to try and 
eradicate the use of EPO, which is a, a, a hormone that will stimulate red blood cell production and thus uh, improve your aerobic uh, capacity. Um, and a part of the problem was that uh, back then, actually, you, there was no test to detect EPO. And what they decided to do was rather than actually develop a test that detected the drug uh, that was being used, actually what they would do is they would use regular testing to monitor a biological profile. And in this case, they monitor um, the uh, blood and the parameters within the blood, most specifically or not exclusively, the red blood cells. Um, so... Again, cycling one of the first sports to use, rather than urine testing, regular blood testing. And the concept is that current anti-doping regulations normally set uh, levels, maximum levels of, of compounds or drugs. But you could see within a, a blood profile where there would be a maximum and minimum, which would be deemed normal. However, each person slightly varies around the upper and lower limits, and most of those are kind of medically set in terms of, you know, you've not got enough red blood cells, you get too much, and that's dangerous at both ends. So the concept was that as you develop and have more blood tests, you could develop a personalised upper and lower limit uh, for your blood parameters, and then if you deviate out of that limit, then that's what's called an adverse uh, finding, and then that would need investigated, there would need to be a, a medical reason why um, your blood parameters were too high or, or too low. So rather than look for the drug itself, they look for what the drug has done, what it's the outcome of taking that particular drug, and in this case, uh, EPO. Of course, EPO is not the only way to... Um, actually increase the number of red blood cells. The other way is, is through transfusion. So you could have some extra blood from somebody else, um, that's called homologous, or you could take some blood of your own blood, take it out, store it for a while and put it back in. That's called autologous. And it's the latter one of these that's, that's the centre of this particular um, uh, case of, of doping. Um, so these cyclists and, and the uh, Nordic skier and, and, and I think there are other athletes potentially that will be implicated have taken their own blood out and put it back in again and uh, that's a lot harder to detect so if it's somebody else's blood you can usually tell because it's got a different uh, uh, makeup uh, whereas if it's your own blood that you're putting back it's, it's, uh, it's a lot more difficult uh, to detect I don't know if you guys have any comments that you want to... I suppose it's always the fact that if um, there are rewards, then there's always the temptation to just ostensibly cheat. And in this situation, they've come clean. And But also in, in terms of t telling their story, they're also um, showing how, in some respects, it was fairly e easy to do this and to cover it up and their mechanisms for covering it up and that I suppose is, 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 is the worrying part of it as well that they could still do that even as you say with the biological uh, passport the other way they can do it as well is also, is also go to altitude and do altitude training 
So there's ways of, and, and then that confuses the issue as well because then through training, you can see an increase in uh, you an increase in red blood cell count, etc. And then that confuses the issue as to where the, the parameters lie for the biological. And we've we've done some of this in the past in terms of just trying to look at an immune profile for for an athlete and continually monitoring, etc. And it's a very difficult thing to see because it, there is such a a variation within some of the, the numbers that you're looking at in, in, in terms of the, the blood profile. Absolutely, and as you highlighted there, you know, training influences our immune system, illness influences our immune system, stress, so our immune system responds to stressors. So we're going to continue to see alterations in that profile due to those stressors, and depending on how stressed we are at that time, it can change quite dramatically. So it's it's a, a really difficult job for the anti-doping agency to um, to stay on top of this and really um, try and make sure that individuals aren't um, being able to compete in the sport um, whilst performing these acts. Again, I think it's you know I suppose the disappointing thing for me is you know that actually you know in theory the biological passport is a powerful tool because you don't have to keep. Uh, developing a new test when they alter the, the drug itself a little bit because yeah. that's always been the case in the past you know they, they tweak you know a, a, the drug and then it's not detectable in the tests that they currently have and so on whereas ultimately if you're looking at a response to a drug then in theory it should be much more powerful and and of course you know that's a worry once once you know people find a way around or you know even you know there have been you know you alluded to other reasons why you know blood profiles change and of course that is part of the process you know an adverse finding doesn't automatically mean that you get a ban whereas you know and there have been you know bans for uh, taking uh, or using the biological passport as the tool in the past so it has been effective to some extent um, and it kind of got around, I suppose, what Lance Armstrong was doing. They were microdosing EPO because that was really difficult to detect. But I think what we can see now is a change in tactics where, so just to put it in context, my understanding from uh, a testament from the Nordic skier is that they were taking this blood out and they were putting it back in again before a race or before a block of training and particularly in terms of the race, what they would do is they would take the blood out again after the race. Um, because if they leave that blood in, then because you've got too many red blood cells, then um, the body stops producing them. And one of the key characteristics that the biological passport assesses is the profile of the age of the blood cells. Because obviously mm -hmm. blood cells get produced by the bone marrow. They go throughout the body they live for a certain amount of time and then, then they die off. And there's a continual process of blood cells at different ages. So if you have a period where you've taken uh, a blood transfusion, you're normal and you're too high and you stop producing blood cells, then you'll not have enough young blood cells. And that's, that is detectable in the passport. So it's a shame that they find a way around it. It's a shame that potentially it's a, a dent in the tool of, of the biological passport uh, trying to stop this uh, and uh, again it's a shame that uh, we have cyclists that are seemingly trying to trying to cheat here. I think on it as well it's uh, big data can help us here maybe not so much in t so the big data that we would require in terms of the biological passport is we get more information as it goes forward that'll take a while 
but the big data that could be helpful is around performance and performance metrics and parameters. So having that information and getting better on that, so we know what power outputs people can put out. We know how fast they can go and up a hill, etc. And then you've seen that in the past where that information has been used to go and this seems a bit odd that the, the performance of a particular athlete. And I think that's as we move forward we'll be in combination with mm. the biological passport can give us an indication of when things seem a bit um, out of kilter, seem mm. a bit strange. And we have seen that. We've seen, yeah. you know, there's more, lots more visibility of data. Absolutely. You know, I Strava think. and and, yeah. and power profiles and people, yeah. you know, putting that data out there. And mm-hmm. you know, and it seems nearly inevitable nowadays. You know, I know, you know, if somebody does a really good performance, all of a sudden the press are clamouring for, well, what was the data? Is that really possible? And so mm-hmm. on. And and part of me, while that's a good part, because I'm sad about that. Because, you know, you could be somebody who just, you know, has a really good day and really performs and all of a sudden it's kind of like people are pointing the finger, was that real? And that, that is the whole sad thing about, you know, uh, doping and so on. And in fact, links us to the, the, the next article that we really want to talk about is because, you know, relatively recently, um, the UCI brought in a, a rule uh, controlling tramadol. So tramadol is a... Is, is a uh, a pain drug uh, and has certainly been uh, used in the past. There's documented uh, that riders have used it in the past, so it's great, you know, it minimizes pain, you know. And if, if, uh, but what it does is, and, and if you listen to the testament of cyclists, is that they feel they don't feel the pain of trying really hard, so it allows them to try really hard. Um, and and thus potentially uh, impacts on their performance. They just keep keep going at a point where they wouldn't they would normally give up because it's too too hard. It feels too hard, too painful. Um, but so uh, the UCI have decided that they're going to test for tramadol. It's not not banned uh, as such. It's not uh, on the water list. Um, but the UCI have, and of course it's you know they're they're not going to. Ban riders as a result. So, guys, what do you think of this? Again, it's a, it's a slightly mixed message, isn't it? And, that, and that's a problem sometimes with this. Too. So, if they're not going to ban the riders, what are they actually going to do? What's the what? what you know, um, what's the penalty for this? Yeah. <clears throat> they are going to disqualify them from the races where they get caught, and also give them um, a, a money fine. So there is a... Um, so at least there's something. There's a punishment there, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess with UCI, it's encouraging that they're taking this step. So, you know, um, WADA is on... Uh, sorry, Tramadol is on WADA's um, watch list, but it's not actually a banned substance yet. So it's quite encouraging that the UCI are actually being leaders in this area. Um, um, I suppose actually one thing would be is collecting, you know, at least if they're testing, they kind of get a little bit more of a an idea of the issue. Absolutely. Possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I guess one of the other issues surrounding this are um, it can make riders drowsy and, you know, there's there's a lot of debate and question surrounding what impact that could have in the peloton and races as well if riders are on it. Mm, yeah, that's right. I think there's some, you know, certainly suggestion that... Um, you know, coordination and awareness um, diminish. You know, if you're, of course, we've no idea. You know, how much tramadol, uh, you know, these cyclists might be taking. Um, so they might 
be taking a reasonably high dose and uh, if that's then impacting on their I suppose it's a skill level, you know, they're riding them within a peloton, they're not really as aware as they might be normally of people around them. I suppose we all know that if you try really, really hard and work really hard, and this tramadol will allow you to work beyond a level that you would probably be happy doing otherwise, you know, you do lose perspective of what's around you and so on and everything. So that makes, you know, or has been attributed to potentially crashes, they say, within the peloton. Uh, and that then impacts on everybody because if there's a major crash, you know, there's lots of people that are affected. So it's good. Yep. It's good to see that well, the UCI are doing for me then in terms of the discussion we've just had then. It's like the data is power. Yeah. So finding out if it is an issue, how widespread, widespread is, is are people using it, etc. And then uh, I think then they can be acted upon. So, yeah. So again, you know, come back, you know, we, we can be critical of our own sport in terms of, you know, it's, it's past and it's doping profile and whatever. But, you know, at least, you know, there's, you know, action in terms of trying to, uh, you know, I mentioned first, first sport to bring in biological passport and now uh, bringing in this test for tramadol. So I can only... I suppose keep asking them to to keep innovating in this way to try and get get drugs out of our sport. I suppose the last thing I want to touch on in in our news section is uh, the very recent news um, about Team Sky. Now we you know we we're a, a podcast that really focuses on if you like the science of cycling. We're not we're not a journalistic podcast. We don't we don't cover races per se. Um, and so you might say, well, why are we talking about Team Sky getting a new sponsor? Um, so the new sponsor, we believe, is, is going to be Ineos. Um, I suppose for me, the, the reason for bringing this into our news section is, is the fact that on top of the, you know, this, the, the new name for the team and so on and everything, is, there seems to be a significant cash injection. Now, we believe that Sky was already probably the richest team in the peloton. Um, so what do we think, guys? You know, more money coming in for, for that team. What does that do to... Or what might they do with that money, I suppose? And what does it do to the sport? In any sport, if there's one team and one person winning all of the time, it's not good for the sport. You need to see competition. And if it means that in terms of any sport, not, not just cycling, if there's a big cash injection to a team already being very successful, if that takes them above and beyond the means of the other teams in terms of what they can do in terms of preparation, science, uh, uh, the practicalities of, of, of running a tour team, etc. And if that advantages them so far, uh, to such an extent, the other teams can't compete well then it's it's not good for the sport but again this is all supposition at this minute in time as to how much potentially is going into it etc but you know there, there's potential for it not uh, not to, to play out too positively for the, the sport if that's the case Leslie? Yeah I think I disagree with everything um, that you guys are, are saying there we want to make sure that there is good competition that all the good riders aren't being swallowed up by um, one team that all the teams have an equally strong field around them to you know because certainly in road racing the team is so key so we want to make sure that you know 
we're seeing teams of good strength and but we see this in other sports it's not, you know we you know you got your manchester cities you've got your uh, mercedes grand prix you know formula 1 cars you know we you know although to be fair you know uh, formula 1 have brought in lots of uh, restrictions and so on to try and even the playing field do we think that might happen here and for cycling you, can you see the UCI starting to feel they need to intervene potentially potentially uh, but I suppose from from a science you know from a point point of view of, of us being scientists with more money coming into this world it allows for more science to be done you know so as scientists we, can, we would quite like to be able to be involved in that science, etc., and be interesting to see how the science and the innovation around the science part of it can be brought forward. So, you, you know, from, from our point of view, I suppose we can wear two hats. We're like, yes, let's see investment in the sport, but at the same time, you know, as a competitor, I, I want to see competition. I want to be able to know, or sorry, I want to go into, um, you know, watching a race and, and not know who's going to win it. You know, and that's that's the thing, etc. You know, you always want that, as Leslie was talking. But you know, you want it to be competitive. You want it to be a competitive league, etc. And you know, in American football, they try and I was talking to you guys earlier. You know, with American football, they try and level the, the playing field in terms of wage gaps, etc. And the draft, how they draft uh, um, the uh, the athletes into the teams, etc. And um, we're not there yet with cycling for sure. Uh, but it would be interesting to see if it continues. And to escalate in that way with one team being dominant and one team uh, attracting all the funding as to how, how that may be dealt with, put it that way. I think the positive to take from it as well is that there are big companies who are really willing to invest in cycling too and I think that's a really positive thing going forward and hopefully if we get some more companies coming in that can support some more teams then mm. you know, we'll see the whole sport move forward together. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, the one thing I reflect on is, I suppose, you know, 10 years ago when Team Sky were, were first formed and, and they came in and they took a completely different approach. They did apply science. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, the, you know if the, the rest of the teams were dabbling in it probably, but, you know, the, the Team Sky took it to a completely different level. Um, so... You know, I suppose I'd like to take away the positive from that and say, well, how much did Team Sky contribute to the development of science in and around the professional peloton? And I think massively, oh, massively. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, um, now a lot of that was, I suppose, uh, borrowed from, from the British cycling background because, you know, it grew out of, you know, Dave Brailsford's experience of, of helping you know, Great Britain to win all the Olympic medals. Um, but, you know, they, you know, the sum of that is, is unique to, to the pro peloton. You know, they, they went out and they, they, I suppose they took some of the expertise, some of the processes. And I suppose one would hope that they would not just use the extra money to, I suppose, uh, you know, replicate the uh, scenario in, in, say, in football where you just, go out and buy more expensive players and all of a sudden the money just ends up in expanding you know riders pay packets you know we'd like to see that percolate across other aspects than rather than salaries and transfer fees or whatever um, so it'd be really nice to see some new innovation of course the one aspect around that is of course that uh, a bit like uh, formula one you know the uci actually are and have a historic background of being quite 
strict on on equipment and rules and so on. So, you know, they do have history in mm -hmm. in keeping the sport in check and you know allowing you know for example bike designs to go completely radical. Sometimes scientists we scratch our heads because we kind of go, oh, that's a shame we can't do that because <laughs> it's not allowed. Uh, it would be really fun to try that, but <clears throat> you see, I don't allow it. Okay, then, folks, uh, thanks for listening to this episode of the Cycling Science Podcast. And a uh, special thanks to my guest uh, for this episode, um, Paul Morgan. Uh, also, then, thanks to my co-hosts, um, Professor Geraint Florida-James from Edinburgh Napier University and the Scottish Mountain Bike Centre, and uh, Dr. Leslie Ingram, also Edinburgh Napier University. Uh, both of which can be found uh, through Edinburgh Napier uh, University website. And it's goodbye from me, your host, Professor Richard Davison. If you would like individual coaching uh, from me, you can contact me directly through our website, which is cycling-science.com, or you can easily find me on Twitter. It's rich underscore davison uh, or you, if you look for me on linkedin you'll be able to find me there uh, as well remember if you would like us to cover a particular topic on cycling science podcast please again navigate to our webpage, which is cycling-science.com where our contact form will allow us you to send us a wee message and indicate what you would uh, like us to talk about. So, until next time, I encourage you to keep learning to inform your coaching, training and racing. <laughs>